Namaste from India, where I'm recording this bookend. This is episode 44 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Some years ago, I used to run a YouTube channel called The Progressive Parent, where I interviewed various experts on parenting, on their approaches, and my friend Chris Stefanik had me on his show, Choice Conversations, to talk about how we can be more conscious parents. Okay, if I came to you and I said... I'll just give you a, a scenario. My daughter, she's driving me crazy. She's whining all the time. I don't know why she's whining all the time. I ask her nicely, please stop. And that really is frustrating for me when you do that. And when something's wrong for her, she starts this whining, and I, I can't get her to take another approach. Did you have any advice for me? This is driving me crazy, Anthony. Yeah, for sure. So I'd want to, first of all, empathize with the difficulty and really find out what she's whining about and why it um, affected you so badly. But ultimately, what I'd want to do would be to teach you the reflective listening technique, uh, which is obviously one of the most popular techniques in communication skill, dumb, uh, which is being able to reflect back what the other person is saying in your own words and even better if you can put an emotion on it and here for example if your daughter was whining I'd want to be able to say it sounds like you're upset about that I would hope that by cultivating a relationship with your daughter where you could really listen to what she was saying and why she was whining. I mean, I would I would probably, I feel like I don't have enough information to make a judgment. We could have gone into a whole role play there uh, and maybe that's what we should have done. But I, I would guess that if someone's using a, an approach like whining or shouting and at that kind of age, it's because they're afraid that they won't be heard if they speak in a normal fashion. So they're doing something which cannot be ignored, and perhaps your frustration would be coming up because she was finding a way to make you feel something that she was feeling. She was feeling frustrated, and she knew that the whining was a way to really tell her story in a way that you couldn't ignore. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yeah, and I can tell you just from personal experience, seeing this with the children and they're, they're whining or they're yelling or whatever, it's almost always, it's a power issue. Children are so lacking in power in our society and children are so often caught up in a power over punishment model. That's what around them, their parents, their teachers, everywhere they go, it's, it's punishment and, and rewards, carrots and sticks. And they get that, okay, so this is how, if you want something, if you're not getting what you want, you punish the other person. And, oh, hey, they really don't like it when I whine. They really don't like it when I'm yelling. So it's their way to punish. They can't ground their parents. They can't tell their parents to go take a time out or take away their iPad or whatever. You know, <laughs> they, so this is a way that they're doing what the parents do. So if you've, if you've implemented this model of punishment and rewards, your child is going to attempt to punish you when they're not happy with your actions. So, and I've seen it so many times. It's, you know, Marshall Rosenberg talks about autonomy wars. Yeah. In households, he said, you know, in households all across the world, you know, right now there's millions, probably billions of autonomy wars going on where the child is wanting freedom, 
something that humans in general seem to really crave freedom and fight tooth and nail for freedom. And their parents are trying to not let them be free. And so you have this, this autonomy war. So that's what my experience has been with it, that whenever children act that way. I like your approach, though, definitely empathizing with the child. I would say empathizing with the child, realizing what need of theirs. There's got to be some underlying need of theirs that's not being met, that they're using this strategy of yelling to try to get that need met. Or if you can show them that there are other strategies like negotiation that are much more positive and that they can actually get their needs met using negotiation, and that's a better way, you know, that's the way to go. But if you've not started from the beginning with negotiation with your child, it's going to be so tempting to fall back into, damn it, stop yelling, or, you know, I'm taking away your TV for the day, or you don't get any dessert, or whatever. Just, you know, I mean, one, it's, that's how you were parented. If you're parenting that way, that's how you were parented. So it's kind of, I, I call it your programming. You're programming to respond this way. And to break that is just really, really hard. And you're also being triggered by this activity from the child. They're probably acting how you did when you were a child. And your parents got frustrated. So that was also in your programming is that you kind of lose it whenever a child's acting a certain way. And so you start to lose it just like your parents did. And then you end up acting in a way that you don't want to. You know, you're trying to implement this new method of negotiation and peaceful win-win scenarios. But you're stuck in your programming and you end up falling back, you know, into these, these more tragic strategies. I've been there myself. <laughs> I'm still I'm, uh, trying to implement these strategies in, in my life and having a lot of success, but it's not 100% success. I still have all of my programming to deal with that creeps in if I'm not careful. And, you know, I can be triggered by these things. I can sympathize with parents that are, if, if you're relating to what I just said, <laughs> I'm right there with you. So, Yeah, uh, there's so much truth in what you're saying. And when I'm uh, around the city, the number one thing that I see parents struggling with, with children, is when they are sort of inimical to the behavior of the child or they're resisting the child's experience rather than working with it. Mm, yes. Whenever your child behaves in any way, you have to act like you chose it, even if you didn't. <laughs> and, and, and say, right, now, now everything's an opportunity to connect and understand why the child's behaving a certain way. So in your example, I... Um, of, of, of why the child's whining, I would really want to look at the relationship between father and child over the long term and uh, see what were all the elements where there, there was a connection lacking because there's never any trouble with children when a connection is present. Now, I can maybe give a couple of examples from working of working with from my experience I'm no parenting expert myself although I really enjoyed uh, interviewing experts and reading books and things but when I was a volunteer in school I, I put into practice these approaches on a daily basis and it was really inspiring to see the ways that children would react. At first there were some children who would try and maybe be a bit cheeky or bold and 
it really never affected me. I kind of laughed and smiled, and uh, they just would stop. I guess it was to test what kind of person I was, and when they saw that, I'd kind of smile and laugh along. Um, one one child called me by my first name, which, you know, I was given that choice whether I wanted to be Mr. Samroff or Anthony, and I said I really didn't mind. So when he called me by the first name, I called him by his, I said, well, I'll call you Mr whatever his surname was, and, you know, he said to me, no, I'll call you Mr. Samroff, and you call me um, by my first name, which I thought was a way of communicating that he actually had a genuine respect for me and wanted to call me by my surname, but that was really nice. But I wanted to talk about using connections, um, or, or rather how connection, how where connection is not lacking, you don't tend to have any problems at all with children. Because my approaches were effective, in fact they weren't my approaches, they learnt from Adele Faber, who you had on your show, Alfie Cohn, who you had on your show, Thomas Gordon, who wrote Parent Effectiveness Training, a trainer from whom you had on your show. <laughs> well, I, I got to practice them. And... I was often put with the most difficult children in the class. Now, I say difficult. My personal view is they probably weren't particularly difficult. It's just, as you say, there's a lot of coercion in school. You're told what to do and when to do it. And some kids can take that, and some kids really can't. They, they have a greater need for autonomy. They might have a shorter attention span. They might need to run around more. They might have more energy. And the school is not adaptive to different learning styles. Some people can't sit and take information in a lecture. Some people need one-to-one -one attention. Some people need to draw diagrams. Some people need to touch things uh, and get their hands dirty. And there's only so much you can do in a class of 30 kids. Anyway, as a classroom assistant, I was put with the, the in inverted commas, difficult children because these Thomas Gordon approaches were really, really effective. One, one time I had a, a child, at least twice he sort of did what some might call went going off the rails, he started to run around. And in that moment, I was kind of, you know, shocked because I'm like, okay, so how am I going to deal with this? Am I going to, I, I, I don't agree with punishments. I'm not going to threaten them. I'm not going to reward them with gold stars or, or try and bribe them. Uh, I can't force them to do anything. I certainly can't hit them. I'm in school and I never would even if I could. So I was kind of a bit spellbound and I was like, so what am I going to do here? But, as one thing that I advise with clients who are having problems with, who want to improve their social skills, is taking a moment to come into your centre. So when you're in an environment and someone says to you that knocks you off guard, instead of getting really, really self-conscious, you anticipate it or you watch your self-consciousness, take a deep breath and come into your centre and get ready to pr bring your own presence and ingenuity to the situation. And that's exactly what I had to do. Now, I've been working with this child for a while, and in that instant, after I didn't know what to do, coming back into my centre, I remembered how this child enjoyed playing cards with me another day. So I, I, I just said, do you want to, do you want to play cards? And in that instance, he dropped running around like a maniac, went to the other room, 
got a deck of cards and played with me for 20 minutes until our period was over. And he just, he was bored. It was, it was in that instance I realized that what happened was he got bored of the activities that we were doing and um, didn't know how to handle boredom. Now, if I'd gone for the traditional approaches of coercion or punishment, I never would have got that lesson. I never would have got to understand the child. And if I was his parent, that lesson would be invaluable to me. He goes off the rails when he was bored because it was come it would come up again and again and again. The other story I I, I really wanted to share because it was uh, one of the most heartwarming experiences of my experience as a classroom assistant. The teacher took the kids out back to learn about lines of symmetry and she got them to go in pairs and the idea was for one of them to draw half a shape and the other one to draw the other half of the shape and then to draw lines through them showing all the lines of symmetry. Now, the usual caveats for school were thrown in there. If you, uh, but you know, if you guys are noisy or loudy, rowdy, we'll just go straight back in and, you know, all, all this controlling of fun. God forbid kids enjoy themselves in school. Um, and which is, which is sadly tragic. Uh, anyway, some, some of the children took it upon themselves to draw to write their names out instead of the shapes. And when she noticed this, she came right over to them and, you know, is your name symmetrical? You know, <laughs> absolutely uh, raging at them. So I, I, I thought, by she, she took the chalk off one. By sheer intuition, I just went straight into that situation and I was just like, okay, what letters in your name are symmetrical? And, you know, the the child pointed to the capital A in his name, and it was like, right, that's right. Um, do you want to draw a line of symmetry through it? And um, he didn't have chalk anymore, so I had to fetch him some chalk. He put a line through the A, and it was like, what else? Maybe there was an O or an N or what, whatever letters were symmetrical. I got them both to do it with their names. And... The teacher saw me do this, actually, and to her credit, she didn't look in any way undermined by it. She was a, a young person, um, maybe perhaps around my, in my age, this was, this was going back a couple of years, and I did it as part of my undergrad university degree. I, I, I took that placement as a elective, so uh, while doing some courses in education, I feel like that was an amazing example of acting like you chose the situation even if you didn't because it was like, okay, the object of this exercise is to teach the children lines of symmetry. They did not perform the exercise as expected, so how could I take what they did do and use it to feed into the exercise? And, you know, those kids would, like, take the opportunity to sit on either side of me at assembly after that and things like that. They really got that I was doing something different. Kids get this uh, very quickly. They're drawn to it. And, you know, I get secret high fives from one of them going down the corridor. And <laughs> it just shows that a little ingenuity goes a really long way with the, ki- with the kids. Don't, don't use co- coercion. See in any way that you can connect and... And, and find a mutually satisfying solution. And, you know, as much as possible, the same is true as of adults, except for if you can't connect with the adult, you can leave, and, and it's probably the healthiest thing, thing to do in a lot of circumstances.
Yeah, those are great stories. Thank you for that. I like what you say, the acting like you chose the situation. In parenting, you pretty much have, you know, <laughs> you've, yeah. you've had that child since day one, and you've taught them how to respond to situations, what's appropriate, what's not. And you may think, oh, I didn't say, like, the, going back to the whining, I never said that whining was appropriate. Are you kidding me? I, from day one, said that's not appropriate behavior. We don't, we don't talk like that or whatever, but it's like, okay, but you're in the punishment model, right? And the child sees that this is a punishment for you, that you don't like it. So you've taught them that the way you deal with others is you punish them. And that's just over and over. It's really hard to put any blame on the child in these scenarios, that's why I wanted to talk about looking at the whole situation because where a child is trying to punish an adult, that means there's a lack of goodwill in the relationship as a whole. And the main goal is to cultivate lots of goodwill so that even when in the last place where you really need a child to do something and they don't want to do it, there's enough goodwill there that you can say, I am, I'm like, I'm really, really sorry, but we need to get this shopping. Is there any way that, is there anything I can do later on to make up to you? I know you'd rather stay in, I know, you know, but, but, but this is really important to me. So that the child wants to say, yeah, 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 I guess you're right, you know. I, I, I've been teaching piano for maybe eight or ten years, and most of most of the students I've had was children. So I've, I've, I'm I'm a human being too. I've I've got an ego, and sometimes um, I come in in the in the morning, and uh, I I'm maybe more tired than I'd like to be, and I've got. I get frustrated more easily than usual. I've learned to be very, very patient. You have to be to teach the piano. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes I felt myself becoming a little bit short. And I've always apologized to the child whenever that's happened. I've been teaching him, said, I'm sorry for getting a bit short. And I'm sorry if I'm getting impatient. That's not your fault. If I get impatient, it's nothing to do with you. You're doing great. I don't care if it takes you this lesson or 10 lessons to learn it, I'd rather you took your time and learnt it at the pace that's right for you and uh, learnt it well than felt like you had to rush because I was impatient and did a couple jobs. So if, if, I'm, if I'm impatient, I'm responsible for that and, and that's your fault. Uh, sorry, that's not your fault. That's, that's my responsibility. And I'm sorry for being short with you. And I, I feel that's really important because it models the lessons lesson that children are not responsible for the emotions of the adults around them as much as some parents might like to think that they are and um, you know they're always like oh no it's fine but it's fine but that doesn't mean that they don't admire me for that honesty and for saying it I can tell that they do I could I could when on the on the occasions when that's happened and it, it, it's, it's not been lots of occasions, but when it has happened, the few occasions where it's happened, I could see that they really admired me. It's a good way to say that, you know, I don't have to be infallible and, and neither do you. That's an unreasonable expectation to hold a human being to. Sure. No, yeah, I agree. I try to do that as well whenever I'm not behaving in a manner that I would have liked if I slip into my programming and... I'm not using these communication skills and relationship skills that I've learned that I wasn't taught at a young age, but I've learned as an adult. I will apologize, be that to my daughter or other people, 
And yeah, I think it's it's good on so many levels. It teaches the children to be responsible for their own emotions. It teaches them that you are fallible. You know, so many parents they bristle at the thought of admitting to their child that they were wrong or apologizing because then that's an admission they were wrong. And I think there was somewhere along the way people got this idea in their head that they're supposed to appear to their children like they're perfect and they don't make mistakes. And it's just such a wrong way. You know, I mean, you need to model to your child what happens when something doesn't go right, be that just, you know, getting short with them when you're trying to teach them something or whatever, making a mistake, you know, you need to, to model for them that mistakes happen all the time, and that's totally fine, so that they don't have some inferiority complex. I mean, as it is, it's really hard on children because they are lacking in skills to adults around them. You know, from day one, it's like, gee, I'm trying to walk and I keep falling over. Just, you know, I go to reach for my glass and I knock it over as many times as I grab it where these adults just seem amazingly skilled at everything they do. And that's only going to be worse for them if they think that, oh, my parents are perfect and never do anything wrong. You know, so it's on multiple fronts. I mean, you're teaching them how to handle when they have a failure, how to apologize, how to take responsibility for their actions, teaching them it's totally fine to not be perfect all the time, to make mistakes, that's just a really important thing to do that somehow got lost in our culture along the way. I also like what you said about cultivating goodwill. To me, it was a really touching story experience that I had recently. So my daughter, she's in a Montessori school that she just absolutely loves. We love it. The teachers are really good, and she's it's very self-driven. She gets to pick what she wants to do, and, and she just loves going in. She would rather go there than be home most of the time. And on the last day of school is approaching for the summer they were having, having their last day of school party and right after this we were going to leave to go on a road trip to go visit my mom you know go visit grandma for the weekend my mom is 500 miles away so we're going for three or four days and the school at the last minute announced that I know that we said Thursday was the last day of school, but we're actually going to make it Friday to make up for some of the snow days we had earlier in the year. And we had hotel reservations because we're not driving the whole way through. We were looking at possibly moving it to another weekend or or whatever because we didn't really want her to miss that party. And she saw me and my wife having this discussion and being like, oh, man, this is going to be so rough to move to another, you know, we're like, well, maybe we could do it this weekend. Ah, that weekend's not good because of this. Or maybe we could do that weekend. Ah, yeah, maybe, but I, I would really don't want to or whatever. And she came up and she was just, she had this really sad look on her face. And she's like, Mom, Dad, I can just miss the party. It's okay if it would be hard on you guys. We can just go like we were originally planning to and I'll just miss the party. And I could tell she was like so sad to miss that party, <laughs> you know. But she was offering that, that she wanted it to help. She didn't want to see us have these struggles, you know, it was so sweet that she made that offer, you know, and, and, and I was like, no, we'll figure something out. And ended up, there's a happy ending to the story. I talked to the teachers about it and they said, oh, we're still going to have the party on Thursday. Brilliant. Friday, the last day, is the, this extra day that we have, all we're doing is we're going to ask the kids to help us clean up for the summer and put things away and just close up shop. So if you miss that, it's not a problem at all. We're having the party done the same. And we're like, yes. So 
aspect. Yeah. If there hadn't been the thought there that it was going to be Frazier, you wouldn't have had the opportunity for that really touching moment, which I think was maybe even a bit of a coming of age for your daughter. Yeah, yeah. She knew that something was going to have to give. You know, either we were going to do it on a weekend we didn't want, or she was going to, we were going to leave, and she was going to miss the party. And so she offered that. It was uh, just a really sweet thing. Yeah, that was really sweet, Chris. Well, something else that you had said earlier that struck a, a chord with me is you had mentioned at the school that, well, I guess you had the opportunity to go by your first name or by Mr. Samaroff. Yeah. But a, a lot of places, there are these titles. I mean, there's not the opportunity and it's not even at schools. My daughter will have a, a play date at a friend's house, and we'll go over, and her friends will be saying, Mr. Chris. Hmm. They'll say, oh, call me Mr. Whatever, or Mrs. Whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute, I don't call you Mr. <laughs> I, don't, I don't call you Mr. Dan. I just call you Dan. They're like, oh, but it's a thing for respect. I'm like, okay, well, you're not calling my daughter by miss, so does that mean you not, don't respect her? If you're asking her to respect you by using this title, if that's a show of respect, then why is it not a show of respect to say that to her? The whole thing to me is completely ridiculous. When my daughter has friends over, if they call me Mr. Chris, I'll be like, it's fine, You can call if you want to call me that, that's fine. If you want to just call me Chris, that's fine too. That's what I normally go by. And by making somebody use a title that does not make them respect you. It has nothing to do with respect. So the whole thing is, is just so so bizarre and pointless to me. I mean, respect is something that has to be earned. For sure. You can't mandate, mandate you call me by a title and therefore you're respecting me. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Either, either you act in a way that you earn respect from them or you don't act in that way and you don't have the respect. It's one way or another, but mandating that they call you this title... What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I still don't like being called sir by adults and professionals. You know, mm. or people phone me uh, um, from companies and not not cold calls. Companies I'm dealing with and say Mr. Samaroff or something like that. I'm like, please, you know, Anthony's fine. Um, but also, it's weird because it can also be used as a power play. Like I was having this. Um, some problems with a computer repair service um, who were who basically jacked me out of my warranty and made me pay for for repairs. And when when I was on the phone, you know, she keep on referring to me as Mr. Samroff. I can't do anything for you, Mr. Samroff, and things like this, which was a way of keeping the discussion impersonal. And because mm. uh, she was sent to make a phone call to someone by someone who knew fine well that she didn't have the um, ability to make any decisions on my behalf, even if I was justified in my claims. So uh, that was kind of faceless. I was thinking about what you said about the use of... Now, when I was in school... Um, the kids called me Mr. Samroff anyway, even though I, I, I sp- said, said I was happy to be called by my first name. One thing, I, I was kind of agreeing with you, and then I thought, well, in the case of that child that chose to call me Mr. Samroff, I, I guess 
there's a sense in which children do quite like having role models and people older than them that they can admire and look up to and feel they can have as mentors as long as they've chosen those people. And I think in that instance, it was symbolic of that. He'd seen something about me that he liked in my behaviour, um, my non-against-me argument when it, uh, uh, sorry, attitude when it came to the children. You know, I was always on their side, even if I had to come down to someone's level because they were doing something distracting and say, um, this is quite interesting, you know, um, a child's, balancing a rubber on their face or something like that in the middle of class and I can see the teacher ignore it, ignore it, ignore it until the point where she cracks and just just gives them a punishment or tells them to settle down or something like that and instead of ignoring it just sort of maybe going down to their level and saying do you enjoy balancing a rubber on your face and the, the child sort of sheepishly smiling and saying um, yes or, or or no and I said well you know I know you're enjoying yourself but you know you might want to wait till the recess because I think that um, the teacher's getting a bit distracted and it might be distracting to the other students um, I, I suppose the child the children perceive that you're not against them and might there might, that might be a re- reason why they might want to call you by a respectful title but Again, we can see that through the lens of that's how children are trained to show respect. If they weren't, then, you know, perhaps they'd, they'd show respect in other ways. Um, it, it has to, it, the, the inner mass manifest, it doesn't matter about the outer manifestation of, of it, it's all about the inner, inner, what's going on in the inside. If, if, if in the inside there's respect, then you'll be treated respectfully and cooperatively by children. And if the, if the inner condition is a condition of resentment, then it doesn't matter how well you've trained them to call you star. They're gonna, they're gonna act out. Right, right. I'm sure in, in the example you gave that, like you said, that child was taught that this is how you show respect so you would actually since you gave him the choice that was genuine respect that was earned respect that he was showing you where the others where it's it's just mandated it's just not a sign of respect it's just a sign of you've got them to obey i thought it was interesting that you said titles can be a way of keeping things impersonal there's this whole thing in parenting where people say i'm not friends with my child yeah i'm their parent Somebody's got to be the parent. I mean, I can't be the friend. And I just think that's just so insane to approach it that way. For sure. And, I, and I'm like, what What even does that mean? I guess that means that must be coming from somebody that's locked in this authoritarian, that paradigm, the authoritarian parenting paradigm. So I can't be friends with them because I'm the one that dishes out rules and rewards and punishments and things of that nature. First of all, if that is what you view as being a parent, why in the world did you ever sign up to be a parent? Is that really what you wanted? <laughs> you know, is that your idea of fun, is being bossing somebody around and knowing that they're going to fight back because <laughs> you've seen this happen before. You were probably on the other end of it, you know, 20, 30 years earlier where you were fighting back. And why would you even sign up for that? I'd be like, oh, yeah, parenting, that sucks. If that's what I thought parenting was, I'd be like, 
I don't want any of that. I don't want to be a dictator or a, a tyrant rolling over someone. Who would want that? I would want to have... I mean, the reason I signed up for parenting was because I wanted this rewarding relationship. And, of course, I wanted to be friends with my child. I want to have, like, the closest friendship with them as I can have. And to approach it from that standpoint that, no, I I can't be friends with this person, even though I'm going to be living with them for, you know, 18-plus years, I'm going to be spending countless hours. Why would you want to do that? Why would you not be friends with I mean, I would want to be friends with them more than anyone else, you know, because I know yeah, we're friends, sure. the relationship's going to work out a lot easier. I mean, we've got to spend all this time together shared, sharing a house and going on vacations and things of that nature. It's just going to run more smoothly if we get along, if we've got a good close friendship, if we're friends and things are are on a, a friendly, casual basis between us rather than it's you know, God forbid you're somebody that has your child call you sir or father, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I had a guest on my show and she calls it job parenting. Um, But not just, you know, people don't just uh, see parenting as the role of a job. They, they, they They might see it, they have to be this kind of girlfriend or that kind of husband or and, and the problem with job relationships is as soon as you see your role as being that parent, not that friend, your goal is to get the job of parenting done and the other child, the other person, well, in this case a child, becomes a means to an end for getting your job done. So in order to be a good parent, you need to make sure they do their homework and are in bed by nine. And it's like, then who cares what the child wants because you need to do the job of being a good parent which means you you can't you can't take into account the emotional reaction of the other person and um, if, if you see your responsibility is to get married because you're um, you know your parents want grandchildren and everyone else in the family and you have a partner who you know uh, doesn't doesn't feel the same way as you as marriage the 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 question becomes, how can I get them to do what I want? And it's no longer a relationship. You're no longer uh, responding to one another dynamically. I, not long before I got into these things, I I was a summer camp counsellor. I was still pretty progressive as a caregiver for children. I don't know if I'd read Summer Hell by A.S. Neal at this point yet or not. Perhaps I hadn't. But um, I I fell into that role once and only once, and that gave me all the information that I needed to know. Um, I had a child who didn't take care of his bunk responsibilities. Everyone had a task, and he wasn't he wasn't doing it. And I spoke to my supervisor about it because I didn't know how to handle it. And uh, or 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 no, I'm jumping ahead. I. I I agreed I I punished him and it's the only time I've ever punished a child because he was being defiant and I thought that was the only way I I could do it and you know he said to me um yeah, after he was like you, you know what we're no longer friends and obviously that can't help but hurt because I had a good relationship with all the kids uh, in the in the bunk and when I went to my supervisor 
uh, he said, well, you know, that's fine. He, he's, you're not there to be his friend. You're there, there to be his counsellor. Um, but, um, and, and, and I repeated the same to him. You know, I said, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your uh, bunk counsellor. Um, that's the only time I've punished a child. But it was car cancer for a relationship. You know, it was it, it really destroyed the goodwill we you know he played guitar i had my acoustic guitar with me and we trade tunes a lot better guitar player than i was and certainly with the lead guitar but he he liked the songs i'd written and things like that we connected on music he loved bands that i like like queen and black sabbath and uh you know or or at least used to like when i was uh well (laughs) uh, um I probably still love Black Sabbath if you put them on. They're just not the first thing I reach for anymore. I guess you had to be a teenager. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and and just that one act of punishing him uh, destroyed six or seven weeks of connection that, that we built up. So I, I didn't, I, I, I guess that's all I need to know. But, a lot of people get those results for punishing a child and don't even think, hmm, was that a good idea? Because they're in the job parenting mode. And if the job dictates that you have to punish that child to get them to do what you need to do in order to be a good parent, then that's what you're going to do. Yeah, Marshall Rosenberg, he says, trying to be a good parent is an excellent way of becoming miserable. So, and it's for you know similar logic. You know, it's interesting. While you were talking about that, I got to thinking that if that's your view of parenting, is you're doing it in a job parenting and relationships don't matter, you're probably pretty miserable at your job too. You know, as most people are. I mean, most people are not having fun parenting because they use these scenarios, and most people don't like their jobs. And I think there's a connection there. For me, you know, I enjoy my job. My my job is mainly about relationships. I manage a team, and we provide computer services. So I view my job as keeping the relationship strong, both within the team, between me and my, and my subordinates and the, the team members among each other, and between us and our clients. So I spend most of my time in emails and talking, and I I just view it. I'm like, that's really goal number one is keeping the relationship strong. And... I've just had just amazing success in in this job, like one success after another. The clients are always just raving about how great the work is we do and the like. The people that work for me all love their jobs and are like, seems like they're like willing to to go to war for me. You know, anything I would ask, you know, they're like, oh, you need somebody to work through the weekend? Sure, I'd gladly do that for you, Chris. That's so awesome, Chris. That's so awesome. I'm betting these people that, are having a miserable time parenting because they're doing it job parenting and they don't have a good relationship. They probably don't have a good relationship with their boss or if they have subordinates, they probably don't have a good relationship with them. Yeah. You know, because we're just here to get a job done and you're either doing a good job or you're doing a bad job. And forget about all the other variables that are involved. Through extensive experience of dealing with people, especially in my field, which is relationships, and um, the work comes up so often. And if it's a subordinate, it's it's like 
Sorry, sorry. If you are a subordinate, you can play the rebellious socialist thinking and working for the man here and be sort of passive aggressive in work. But that is not going to help you cultivate skills to do something that you'd like to do more. So again, in the job situation, you act as though you chose it, even if you didn't. And if the management's oppressive, take all you can out of it and get the fuck out of there, excuse the French, as quickly as you can. And go go somewhere else where you can learn more skills and keep learning skills until you can be your own boss. If you're in a management position uh, and so much of that is based on the same model of authoritarian management and people think this has got something to do with um, free market capitalism and and, uh, being top down authoritarian but this my friends is modelled in school. I mean you put some kids through a 12 to to 14 years of do what you're told, what you're told, when you're told, then that's obviously what they're going to create workplaces that model, and they either what they're either used to be told, to being told what to do, or they're um, they want to be the one telling other people what to do, and I, I I hear so many stories of bosses, and even have spoken to bosses about reforming these kinds of attitudes because you really just need to connect with your staff, and a lot of people are really afraid to go there when it comes to dissatisfaction. They are worried that acknowledging someone else's dissatisfaction is going to open up a can of worms and make it more real, like speaking the fact that there's an elephant in the room is going to make the staff as though as though by telling someone that you've noticed that they're dissatisfied you're kind of letting them know something that they don't know already <laughs> if your staff is dissatisfied, it's there it's not going anywhere right. and they're not they're not going to enjoy working for you and they're not going to put their back into the job you need to point it out and be the one to say, say, you know, I, I can, I, I'm wondering if you're really getting much out of it. Is there anything I can do? Such and such and such and such. And connect with their feelings. Even if there isn't anything that you can do, they're still going to enjoy the job more ha- being subordinate to someone who actually takes the time to look after their emotional environment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I did an interview with Jake DeSillis. It's actually sitting on my computer, unedited. I need to get it up soon. But he's from the Voluntary Life podcast, and we were talking about how parents behave like crappy bosses. You know, these a lot of parents yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> and then the children, you know, they're raised with these parents that are, do this, do as I say, punishments, yelling at them and the like. And then in their adult life, they replicate that environment because that's what their their comfort zone is, being around this person. But also, yeah, they don't have alternative skills. They don't have skills to form other workplaces as well. Right, right, right. So then they end up going into this environment and, you know, they're miserable growing up underneath their parents. And then they're miserable at their jobs with somebody who runs their, that workplace just like their parents ran the household and they go on to have children and be miserable now being on the other end of that relationship doing it how their parents did yeah it's just it's, it's so tragic because it's 
a failure on so many levels. You know, it, it could be so much more enjoyable, rewarding, and the end results are you end up with, you know, you're happier, you're healthier, certainly psychologically healthier, but also physically healthier. All that stress in your life, stress is terrible for your health. Yeah. You know, as far as if money is something that's important to you, you're set up to be economically, financially much better off if you parent in this way because you're teaching them negotiation and teaching them how to be successful in whatever it is they chose to do, they choose to do. Yeah. It's really, really important stuff. Imagine everyone could come into work and they're their manager would say, right, guys, here's what needs to be done today. Can you guys, can, what are your proposals? And people put their heads together and found out how to enjoy it on the job. There's, this is not an unrealistic way of running a business. I mean, Ricardo Semler wrote a book called Maverick on how he completely reformed the workplace so people didn't need to clock in and out. They could come in whatever hours they wanted, but they were measured by what work they did. They got to set their own salaries, but um, it was open book, so if people chose a salary that was too high, people would know about it and there would be social pressure there not to take money out of the pocket of the team. And more often than not, managers would interview people and say, say, um, have you considered raising your salary? Um, and departments employed their own managers. So instead of the manager interviewing the staff, the staff would interview their manager and choose someone whom they liked personality-wise and thought was qualified to lead them. This is not a dream. This is the society that we would have and could have if parents were raising their children to have the skills to create those kinds of workplaces and we're going to see a lot more of that in the future one would hope because people are really getting into work like yours work like mine and 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 the internet makes it available and people are much much more going becoming much much more empirical There's a whole movement, I think, in our society towards actually making decisions based on what the the data says. And the the data says peaceful parenting is great, it's better for children, it's better for parents, and the psychological outcomes for both parties are better. We can enjoy more rich relationships and model the skills that will allow our children to create the kind of world that we'd like to live in. Yeah, that's just a beautiful vision. I think we should close it with that vision. <laughs> so, Anthony, if the listeners would like to find out some more, where should they go? Um, yes, please subscribe to the channel www.youtube.com forward slash The Progressive Parent. That's got all the interviews that I've done with parents as well as some interviews from yourself. Uh, sorry, parenting experts. And I put on some podcasts on there with approaches earlier on. I, I might do that as well again. Um, the other YouTube channel I'd really like you to check out is youtube.com forward slash enrichyourlife1. That is all videos on improving relationships. And I think there's some really and communication skills. I think there's some really high quality information there. Check it out. It's a free buffet of life enriching 
um, conceptual and practical information. So get in there and fill up on it because it's just all the, it's just all out there to help people. Um, thank you for having me on your show. A second time, this is really impromptu, and uh, I'm glad that it turned out uh, that it turned out to be um, some content that you'd like to post up. It was nice to trade anecdotes, and yeah. uh, really, really enjoy talking to you again. Hope that we can speak again in the future. Excellent. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Thank you so much for your time, and um, we'll definitely be in touch. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, take care.